Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human with Matt Homan, the co-founder and CEO of Filament, an organization dedicated to curating great meetings, both in person and online. We spent the first half of the episode talking a lot about his experience of, of creating rich experiences in person in his premises in St. Louis in Missouri. And the second half of this conversation, we translate a lot of those insights into the type of meetings that we're having right now, of course, uh, almost exclusively online. So take this episode as a whole, huge amount of, of learnings and practical tips uh, for how we're operating right now. I, I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, I give you Matt Homan. Here with Matt Homan. Matt Homan is the founder of Filament, and we'll learn more about what, what Filament means as we get into this. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. So let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about this venture you've created, Filament, this <laughs> in-person experience, which is uh, interesting given our current time, what it's about, what you offer, and, and what you've learned from that. And then perhaps we could dive a little bit more into the, the situation we now find ourselves in. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I feel like the Lloyd Bridges character in Airplane, where he goes and says, uh, I picked the, pick the wrong week to give up cocaine. I think sometimes I picked the wrong week to start an in-person meeting business here with, the, with what's going on around us. Uh, but Filament, we've been around for almost five years. Uh, we are at our core a meeting builder, designer, hoster. There's really not a good analog for us but a vertically integrated meeting solution. So we have a really amazing space here in downtown St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I know I can't do the metric conversion particularly well for some of our European listeners, but we've got almost 20,000 square feet of space. And what happens is people come to us and they buy a meeting. So we design the meeting, we facilitate the meeting, we host the meeting. It includes all the things that you get from a hotel, the parking, the food, the beverage, et cetera. Uh, but we don't charge for that. We charge for the outcome. So our goal is to deliver to them a meeting that is uh, engaging, immersive, collaborative, that feels different and better. Uh, we've not used a single PowerPoint slide here at Filament for almost two years now. Uh, and because when people come to us, uh, we were talking about this as, as we were preparing for the podcast, we have a huge amount of permission that we have because you're on our turf that we didn't expect to have and is dramatically different than when we were trying to do this work remotely, trying to go and do it in a hotel ballroom. Or, I mean, no one's ever had a brilliant idea in a hotel ballroom anyway, uh, but to try and do it in a hotel ballroom or in a conference boardroom or on site with a customer. And while we still do some of that, having our space really allowed us to design the space for the kinds of meetings we wanted to deliver. And I'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, and it allowed us to deliver meetings that fit our space. And so our meetings are designed around as analog as possible, uh, which has provided a, presented a few challenges recently, uh, but we make it hard for people to plug in a laptop. Like I said, we don't use PowerPoint in presentations. Uh, we have a gigantic whiteboard where people are drawing live. We have an artist full-time here who captures things visually. We have a ton of breakout spaces that are comfortable couches and small, uh, small little rooms and areas for people to be in groups of three, four, five, or six. We use worksheets, right? We use 11 by 17, or is it A4, uh, pieces of paper that help people 
uh, engage in small groups and they'll come back and report out. So we have built this meeting model that is dramatically different than uh, what our customers would do on their own. Uh, and because they come to us, the other thing that's happened by having our own space, our own home turf, as it were, is that we don't have to answer the question I used to get all the time, who exactly like us have you done this exact same thing for before? Because we want to be innovative, right? The oxymoron that that is. Uh, because I've realized that that question isn't they want to be just like someone else. It's the easiest way to understand if you're real, if you're intentional, if you are uh, somebody who understands what they're doing. And because we've got this space, what's changed for us is that we don't get that question anymore. Instead, people walk in here, they engage with us. It feels comfortable. We've got Lego and Play-Doh and most of the toys that my mom has kicked out of our house uh, that were in my garage are now here. And people now come to us and say, oh, I get it. You understand us. You understand this world. You deliver something different. And so as, as we've been around, we have a chance to work. I tried to do the math the other day. Probably 30 different industry sectors, uh, a bunch of nonprofits, our local schools, our customers, some of our big companies here in town are customers. Uh, we've got a handful of national customers here in the U.S. Uh, but then we also get to work with nonprofits, uh, people doing interesting things. And having space changes the math on that kind of work, too, right? Because we, they don't have to worry about still the same cost for a hotel ballroom or space. We can in some cases, give that work away for free. Uh, and it feels different and better. So that was the original business model. Meetings are terrible. They're terrible everywhere. Uh, and we learned the only way to really solve for terrible meetings is to own every part of it. Uh, hotels are like, <laughs> they're like casinos. They're designed to take every penny out of your pocket. And so when we can have a refrigerator full of beer and soda and water and all of those sorts of things. And we just say to someone, if you're thirsty, go grab something. It changes things. So that's really where we started. We wanted to make meetings better. We realized the only way to do that was to uh, have that vertically integrated mix of everything from what they're looking for in a venue to everything, what they might find if they decide to hire a facilitator, package it all up into one thing, uh, and then build those meetings to get to their outcomes in a unique way. Right. And and what had you believe that this was the thing? You know, why why did you start this? Uh, I, I'm a I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur. Um, I really did get tired of trying to do great meetings in bad places. Right? I love uh, I think about Philemon as we help smart people think together better. And so that there's an amount of energy that comes when a room of incredibly smart people are solving big problems. Right? They're addressing challenges, they're collaborating, they're learning how to work together better. The, the business of the world is done in meetings. Uh, and I'm shocked that people have made as much money and been as profitable as they have been and solved the problems we've solved in our societies with as bad as the meetings are. And yeah. so where I, I, I was originally looking at space, I had another business that was a design and strategy company. And we were looking for a space that for a team of eight or so folks. And as I found the space we're in now, uh, we took a small part of what we have here now. And all of a sudden I started to realize, well, we could bring our clients here instead of us having to go to them and thinking about what that changed 
And very quickly I realized that this is a different business. It's not design, it's not strategy, it is meetings, uh, because that's something that everybody has, right? And no one likes them, right? You, you We'll ask a room of people, <laughs> even quickly on a little note card, you know, write the percentage of your day that you spend in meetings, right? And then write the percentage of that time that feels well spent. And sometimes it's 80-10, right? The difference, the delta between those two numbers. And by having the, by finding this really amazing space, it keeps me from having to be on airplanes as much as I used to be. Uh, and it allows us to work across multiple different areas and sectors. And it just, it, it's way better to invite people to come to our space than it is to the moment you show up. And I know you've been in this world too, Richard, where you show up to lead something and all of a sudden the room keeps you from doing what you expected to do. Right. right. The tables are so big that people can't talk across them or you're stuck in classroom style or the walls. You can't put post-it notes up or any of that sort of stuff. And so uh, that was really the, the epiphany is that, wow, if we just had space, how would that change how people meet? And it was the removal of a constraint that we otherwise kept on suffering through. And truthfully, here in St. Louis, Missouri, when center of the country or post-industrial city, uh, we have cheap real estate. So this was not a business I could have started in a Chicago, in a London, in a New York, in a San Francisco. Uh, I think it's a business now that we could expand and we're thinking about how to, how to grow filament elsewhere. But it is fundamentally, this was the minimally viable product. This was our chance to build something uh, that didn't feel like a gigantic risk to my mortgage and my family and my bank accounts. Although, <laughs> That may be changing now, but that's been where kind of where we started right. and where we thought about stuff. Right. So having been doing this a while now, and I suppose becoming an aficionado of the meeting experience, what are what are the key principles that that you now work to to create awesome meetings? Oh, that's great. It's a great question. And and so one of them, and, and I know we're gonna talk about this before we close the before we close this conversation, but one of those fundamental principles was we want to do in the room or in person only things you can do in person, right? Whenever you try to, uh, whenever you're delivering in a room full of people, the most expensive thing in the room is never us, right? It's never the space. It's their time and attention. And why were people spending so much time delivering information to them when that could have been consumed on their commute? It could have been a YouTube video. It could have been review this document ahead of time. We wanted to spend the time when we were together doing stuff together. Uh, and it seems so simple, but you think about the average meeting, how much time is one way delivery of information, right? Uh, to a partially, uh, to a room full of people paying partial attention, right? The, we've all seen the phone underneath the table. Yeah. We've all seen the laptops open pretending to take notes from what the speaker is saying. And so that was principle number one. The second thing is that we wanted the room to be engaged and smart together. And that's different than most meetings where one person is smart at a time, right? If I've got 50 people in a room, uh, even 15 or 20, the traditional model is for one person to present, to talk, to share to the entire room. And then the hands that go up, if they go up at all, are the extroverts, right? Or the people with a certain amount of power in that dynamic. And so 
by even pushing people into small groups as often as we can, rotating them around. It's not rocket science, but the voices, uh, you multiply the number of voices. Uh, you also provide safety to some to share opinions uh, with a smaller group than they might be able to share with the larger one. One of the things we have CEOs here quite a bit, and I tell them uh, quite regularly, you know, you're going to get stuck. Some people are going to get stuck with you throughout the course of the day, but that's not always going to be the same people. And while you might want to wander around and listen in on everyone, the best thing you can do is be in one spot so you're not in all the others. And what that does for people is it allows them to have, in some cases, better conversations. And then again, using some of the models that we use, whether you think about games, whether you think about exercises or activities, however you want to frame them, because uh, there's a mix of all of the above. Uh, they allow introverts and extroverts, men and women, uh, senior and junior people in an organization to collaborate in more effective ways. And then to add to the mix, because we're drawing live and nearly everything that we do, the tools, the output, everything feels fresh and visual and creative. Uh, not to mention, I mean, you see the brick wall behind me. This is uh, not a fake backdrop, right? This is part of our space. I've got, I look up, I've got natural light above me. Uh, Gigantic windows were on the first floor of this really 150-year-old uh, building uh, that used to manufacture shirts for men uh, in our garment district here in St. Louis. And so it all kind of comes together in a way that feels different. Then to add to the mix that people, uh, one out of every six or seven people plays with Play-Doh if it's sitting in front of them, right? Magnets and toys and fidget tools and all of those sorts of things, markers and crayons. It just changes the way that people engage. And that's where uh, we look. One other thing about to, to the last piece of this is, is a fundamental belief we have, and it's not specifically about meetings, but it's part of it, is that you know, everyone is broken in the exact same way. They all think they're broken in completely unique, different ways. And they all overestimate how broken they are compared to everyone else. And all of it is people, right? I, I, I sound you know a bit like in the movie Soylent Green, but like it's people. And, and so... Technology isn't the problem or the solution. It's collaboration, it's discussion, it's problem solving, it's feedback, it's all of these fundamentally interpersonal tools uh, that either advance organizations or get in their way of advancing. And in person, uh, virtually or otherwise, that's where you start to be able to play with those dynamics in a way that um, otherwise organizations tend to ignore. Right. Right. So if I was to, to, to try to summarize what you've just said, then, so there's, there's something about keeping it to the meeting to just what you could do in that in that meeting. So if it's someone living a monologue, for example, this is where I'm interpreting it, they could they could do that on a video and you can watch that in your own time. So keep it to right. the things that require the interaction of that group at that time. Right. Um, and, and even with the monologue, Richard, that. Use the time back in the room to say, hey, we've now just watched 30 minutes of our CEO talking about our vision. We'd likely draw a version of it uh, for them to use, but, but let's talk to the CEO, right? Let's break out into small groups. Let's come up with questions first in our groups to make sure we don't have the one person raising their hand to be smart in the back of the room and talking for 30 seconds with a bit of inflection at the end so it sounds like a question. Right, yeah. But let, let's then use that time for that CEO to unpack and share an answer versus just 
uh, just monologue. Yeah. And you're, and you're applying constraints there. So you're, you're saying you're, you're literally making it physically difficult for people to use laptops, for example, right? So you're, you're constraining the behaviors. And we have like even something as simple as having really small tables. So when we're in the collective room and we have a, a, a really large room just on the other side of the brick wall from me, uh, where we can seat about 100 people. And but the tables, no one's sitting at more than three or four a table. They're small tables. And we don't want people to be able to open up a laptop like it's just it's uncomfortable. There's no way to plug devices in. Uh, we have really good Wi-Fi here, but we tend to hide the codes in the big room a little bit from time to time. Uh, but we also don't take people's devices away. That's the canary in the coal mine for us. And because we're asking people to engage across from them in groups, the it's a social dynamic that keeps them from engaging with the outside world because it feels rude for me to reach while I'm talking to you and now pull out my phone. Uh, and so we don't have to police it as much as I thought we might originally. But that's part of the that's kind of part of our practice. Right. Yeah, I can I can see that as an indicator. In fact, I had that feedback myself when I got a workshop. Well, I, was, I said to this guy and I had to sell it. This may be the third time I was telling him, hey, you, you know, can you please put a laptop? And he said, hey, if you, if you were more interested, maybe I wouldn't I wouldn't be using my laptop. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of got a point there. Right. You kind of got a point. Uh, you discharged. <laughs> So, so I, I see the I see the logic I see I see the logic of that. Uh, but and then you're also saying uh, you specifically design the the exercises and the interactions that allow everybody to take a turn, and that's really consistent with the research that's been done on collective intelligence. That it's the turn taking that matters, right? You want to there's two things. My understanding of collective intelligence: one is collective intelligence is always higher than the average intelligence of the group, or the or the yes. maximal you know, intelligence. So it's, the group's always int- more intelligent than the smartest person in that group. And, it's all, and, if, you, and if you harness collective intelligence, you're, 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 you also have a higher intellect than the, than the average intelligence. But the, to harness it, you need the turn-taking. You need the turn-taking. Right. And, and even, even one of the things that we'll do is when we break out into groups, we, we're really intentional with, these, with the, the worksheets and tools we use. They're well-designed. Uh, they don't ask a ton of questions. They're not complicated because we don't want there to have to be a facilitator who's been trained to lead that group for the next hour, right? So it scales pretty well. Like we've done this work in a room of a thousand people, right? Not here, but where you have people at round tables, you've got, you know, on the stage, but then they're using these tools individually. In every small group, there's a rule follower. There's someone who will take over the, the making sure that the group gets through the, the tool or the worksheet. But the second thing is then we have in some cases, hundreds of artifacts to feed back to our customers. So even if someone stood up and said, here's the one thing we talked about for the last hour, you have a sheet that might have 30 things that they talked about, right? Or their answers to questions. So it even allows when leaders are willing to take the deep dive, there's more insight in the things that aren't shared sometimes than the, than the, the things that are. And it's uh, And we always push our customers to Spend some time with these things. Uh, we'll, have, we'll feed you all the visuals. We'll scan everything that happens here. But let's talk about what happens after you've read them all. Because as a facilitator, we might have people in 15 or 20 groups. I'm hummingbirding from group to group to group, sharing a bit, prodding them, keeping them on track. But even what I am able to gather from all the conversations pales in comparison to what all of those 
exercises, tools, activities can drive back to an organization if they pay attention to it. Right, right. And, the, and then the third thing you mentioned was the environment, right? You talked about the brick walls, the natural light, uh, you know, the, the, the fridge full of sodas or, you know, p- making people comfortable. So that that's, sounds to me like that's a very important part of this package here principle. It, it's important when you can have it, right? The work can still happen when you're in a somewhat traditional space. But what it does is it sends at the very beginning the sig- two signals. One is this will be different. And two, you can trust us. And so when people come here, it feels different. I think that even if you're in a hotel ballroom or you're uh, in another kind of facility, be intentional to get the smallest tables you can versus those gigantic 10 tops that then have a a big centerpiece in the middle so you can't even see across to your peers across the table. Find areas for breaking out. Let people out of the room from time to time, right? Say, hey, we trust you to be back in 30 minutes, give me the cell phone message of one of you. And I'm gonna text you when it's time to come back, even if we just use the tools we already have. If I don't give you a, a Pomodoro little tomato timer and when it rings, come back. But even the things that we've learned uh, by having space here are pretty applicable elsewhere. Uh, it's just, it's always surprising to me how the lack of intentionality, how little people pay attention because they're used to doing it the exact same way. Right. And how much of this, in terms of setting the space, is is to make people comfortable versus grabbing people's attention and having them and signaling to them that okay, you're in a you're in a different mode now. Maybe you're in a creative mode or whatever it is you're trying to create in them. What's the core purpose, I suppose, of those environmental cues? I think it's a, for us, it's a mix of both. We want this to feel like a different place, but we want it to feel like a comfortable different place. Right. right. So we have bookshelves everywhere. We've got toys and games. People, they come in and they're curious when they walk here in here for the first time. And that curiosity feels like it flips a switch. So I don't want them to be curious, like, oh, my God, what the hell are they doing here? Kind of curiosity. I want them to be like, "Ooh, look at that. And this is cool. And that's interesting. And oh, wait, I can go do that. And 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 because you can't design for really comfort for everyone. Some people get a little freaked out when the space is different, right? Uh, because they just want to be in the back of the room on their laptop answering emails all day. We went to the retreat for a thousand lawyers and we were in a big hotel ballroom in Orlando. Sounds fun. <laughs> I, you know, it, lawyers, are, lawyers are a really amazing crowd because they're no, great I'm at joking. solving problems, but, but they never spend time thinking about their own. The business model doesn't support them spending time on their own challenges. And so it's about 6.30 in the morning, and I'm making sure all of our instructions are up on gigantic screens, making sure everything's set up in this room. And this guy comes back to the back of the room, and it's set up for the first time in round tables. They've always done the classroom style. Uh, and he says, and I'll, uh, I'll keep this uh, PG-13 at least, it's like, damn it, who, round tables, who ruined my partner's retreat? And I realized the only reason he was there that early was to find the seat closest to an outlet furthest from the door. Because he wanted to use that meeting to bill eight or nine or 10 or 11 or 12 hours of time. And so he became my, you know, he was my North Star. I, I knew where he was sitting every moment. And he was totally engaged, right? Because we were asking him to talk about himself with his peers. I mean, that's kind of how some of this stuff works. And, uh, but it's, it's funny when you design it, 
you can make it feel as cool as comfortable, there's still people who will be put off at the very beginning because they don't expect to get anything done and you're changing their perception. Yeah. But maybe there's a, there's a, yeah, but maybe that's a good thing. I mean, you, you and I talked before the show about one of our guests, Dave Gray, and he talks about this idea that you want some kind of pattern interruption to put people into a liminal space as he describes it, right. To put, to, to open people up to new experience. So I wonder if actually there's something to be said for a little bit of intimidate, a little bit of pattern interruption there. And in fact, it reminds me of, um, I used to, in another life, I used to run a comedy, comedy, uh, sorry, a cabaret club in, in London, in the West End. And one of our uh, cabaret singers, who was a, you know, a, a, a long standing member of the cabaret community said to me when I was putting on these shows, Richard, do you want to intimidate your audience just a little bit at the start of the show? To, to get their intention and keep uh, and to build some anticipation for what it is that we're going to do with them. And that, that came to mind as you were talking just now. I, it, well, and I, it is, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. Like our space does that kind of automatically, but even as you start to think about engaging people online or in traditional spaces, how might you set things up? So they feel different, right? You need to be a signal. If you're asking people to think differently uh, and this drives me crazy. I see this because we still do some work in the legal space. I see this in the innovate, the legal innovation space, but in so much of people talking about innovation, right? We're gonna talk about innovation and disruption and all these new ways of working and how do they do it? Behind a podium with a remote in their hand with a PowerPoint screen behind them and three other panelists sitting at the panel table waiting to share their ideas next, right? And they'll look in the all like, we, we have now framed these vital conversations about innovation, disruption, the future of work, and yet we continue to deliver them in the exact same way. And how is that a signal to be innovative, right? I almost want to just you know, scream. It's why I don't go to these conferences, because if the conference is saying we're a conference about innovation, look at all of our speakers. I can watch them on YouTube. Let me look at the TED Talks. Let me watch, listen to podcasts or watch video interviews. I, don't, I want to curate my experience. I don't want you to curate it for me and make me sit on my butt for eight hours at a time, listening to people tell me what to do. That's not innovative. That's such a good point. I don't really, such a good point. How many innovation conferences have you been to with the, the eight point plan for innovation on the PowerPoint side? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and think about it, it goes to the collective intelligence as well, is that at a conference, and this is where our business really started about 10 to 15 years ago, is at a conference, you are with the people most like you, right? Whether it's by industry, uh, whether it's by job title or role, there are people in the room who have the most insight, who've already solved the problem you're solving, who've failed in ways you're about to fail, and yet we make it almost impossible to connect laterally with them, right? Think about you've got the famous speaker on top. There's always five or six people who walk up to the front with a business card hoping they're going to have some sort of conversation with them after the conference is over. That person's on to give the next speech. They don't know you. They don't care about you. And in some cases, they may have customized their talk to be focused on your industry, but sometimes not, right? But around you, those are your peers. And yet we've built conferences and meetings too, but even conferences where the only time for social interaction is at the end of the day. And not only is it at the end of the day, but it is often done in a format that is least comfortable for introverts. Uh, and in some cases, and you've, you've seen so much of this come out in the Me Too movement, and these conference codes of conduct in a format that is uncomfortable for women. It's alcohol fueled, 
music in the background. It feels like we all of a sudden turn these conferences into nightclubs in some cases at the end of the event. And so half your audience is either uncomfortable or already gone. And yet we come to conferences, though we say we come for content because the content and the insight is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. We come for connection. And the traditional conference does not deliver that at all unless you're already good at it when you get there. Absolutely. Okay, so now the $1,000 question, which I'm guessing 80% of the listeners still listening are, how do we translate uh, your insight now into the online realm? And, and what have you started to learn? Well, it is. It's a, I, thank you for converting to dollars for me on that, by the way. Uh, the thousand, it, it feels like a thousand pound question. I'm not sure where the, uh, where the exchange rate is. So here's one of the things that, that, that we've been trying to eat our own dog food a little bit here at Filament. We spend time thinking about innovation with our customers all the time. And so we've been trying to apply those same lessons that we teach and observe and facilitate to ourselves. And one of those things is thinking about when we're online, uh, what does it actually mean for us, right? Uh, we always think in the framing we've always had is what are the things we can only do in person, right? Let's do those. And so thinking about that and merging it as a bit of a Venn diagram with also what are the things we can only do online, right? Uh, and what we're learning is that there are some really incredible ways to engage people online. We've been doing this now for the last several weeks with a handful of our customers that it isn't a one-to-one -one correlation. I think lots of people who have already terrible meetings are moving online and somehow are surprised that they're still terrible, right? And they're probably worse because they're now using unfamiliar tools in brand new ways to try and replicate something that wasn't effective at the beginning when they were still all co-located in their offices. And so a couple things. One, a day-long virtual meeting is impossible. Now, some people will disagree. A day long sitting on your headphones listening to people talking to you while you answer email and write and keep your kids in the background from walking into the room, that's doable. But if you want engagement, the virtual tools actually allow you to do that pretty well, but you've got to utilize them in the right way. So one of the things is that the most attention I think you get online to be engaged is 90 minutes. And so that day long conference is probably three or four or five 60 to 90 minute chunks separated out over multiple days. Because then this is where what online can deliver to you with an asynchronous collaborative uh, tool that in person cannot, right? Think about when you have, I guess, I know you've, how many hundreds of things have you facilitated recently, even where Richard, something turns around, you're like, oh my goodness, that's an insight we didn't have. Shit. Let's pivot right now and see what we can use with that because we've got six hours left before everyone goes home. Right. Using those, thinking about what kind of things you can surface and being able to take the time in between session one and two and three and four and five allows you to actually make those subsequent sessions even more vital because you're now planning with what you've learned before with a chance to, to have some insight. The other thing is it allows you to drive thinking work collaboration that might be paired or in triads or quads uh, just like you would have in, a, in a, 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 a group project, right? Before we come back tomorrow, the four of you have to spend at least two hours working on this. 
So you're able to assign homework. And, and this is where the, the tools will only get better. And we're going to learn so many lessons from all of these teachers who are now teaching classes virtually for the first time. It's going to surface so much innovation and methodology on how to manage uh, homework, for lack of a better term, that there's going to be lots of lessons to learn. And then on top of that, you take that virtual meeting and when you're together, be together. Uh, but be together in the right number of people. If I say to you, uh, we're going to have 100 people in this conference, we're all going to be online all at the same time. Uh, that is only effective for me to set up the work we're about to do in small groups. right? 100 people can't all talk at the same time in person. They can't especially do it online. But with Zoom, for example, which is the tool we're using now, I could easily put those 100 people into 20 breakout rooms of five apiece. Right? And as, so long as I give them the right set of instructions and conversations, their conversation is really close to what it would be in person. Right? So you're able to use that tool in that way, but then you have them report out and you make sure that they designate one person to talk. You have the entire room muted and you pick that person to talk at a time and you're engaging them as a facilitator. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm standing uh, in this call versus sitting at my desk is that I cannot facilitate behind a computer. Like I've realized that it's just nearly impossible for me because I talk with my hands and I move, but I'm able to, as we're facilitating, even say to people, you know, like it feels very similar to me in that conversation, right? I've got, you can see the little camera stitched above me. We're using yeah. an owl, which is a really cool 360 camera. Uh, this might annoy people a bit, but I can literally walk around the room. I've got two screens. I've got a Google Jamboard. I've got an opportunity to still replicate my experience for our customers as a facilitator, even if they're tethered uh, in their laundry room with the door closed because it's the only quiet space in their house for the next couple of hours. Yeah, and you'll probably make it. Yeah, that's a good point there because, because of course, we communicate with our bodies. And most of the time, the online experience is a bit like people watching me now. It's right. It's a head. But of course, that's not how humans communicate with each other. We do communicate with our bodies. And so the fact that you've set your camera up so that you can show people your, your, your upper body and your arms and so on, I, yeah, I can really see how that may be making a difference. It, and it just, it, it, it was for me, I would find myself, because I think and I walk when I think. And maybe I, I only think when I walk. I'm not sure where the, where the chicken and the egg come in to that. But again, it's just, a, it's an opportunity. We have a chance to think about these things in a different way. And, and that's where, when I think about this virtual meeting, really the question is, and I saw a New Yorker cartoon yesterday uh, where a guy's sitting in his underwear at his desk with a, with a cat walking across the desk. And he says, wow, all of these meetings really could have been an email. And so <laughs> I, I think part of, our, part of our conversation is, do we really need these meetings in the same way that we did? If we've got distributed teams, are we better off pairing teams in similar time zones together? for some work. How do we get people curious and engaged before the meeting begins, right? All of those things, where is the community? Because in any sort of, of even virtual work, but certainly in virtual meetings, you need a couple tools, right? You need the in-person video tool, and video is crucial, I think. Uh, the second thing is you need a, a synchronous collaboration tool. We've been playing with lots of them. We've been using Mural lately, which is a online tool allows you to post-it notes and do some stuff together. But it is a bit overwhelming if everyone's trying to 
do it all at once across the entire mural or canvas that you have. And the third is you need that asynchronous collaboration tool, right? Whether it's Basecamp, whether it's Slack, whether it's email, which is frankly an asynchronous communication tool. How do you allow people to continue to do work and communicate and engage when they're not all together at the same time or hand work off from this group to this group to this group? And combining all three or four of those tools, because there's a handful of others you might add to the mix, takes some work. And if, if organizations right now do not have a chief collaboration officer, I've always thought that's an amazing title that more organizations should have. This is where they spin that role up very quickly uh, because you need to have someone in charge of getting people to work together virtually. Uh, it's not an HR function. It's not a technology function. Uh, at most, it might, you know, closest might be a change management fun function inside an organization, but that is going to be job one for these people who are working at home. Try and figure out the tools, pick out one at a time, and just stick with it for a bit until you master it enough to feel like you can now add another arrow to your quiver. Right. And that really, uh, that resonates for me, given the conversation I had with Dr. Sarah Perry, who is a recent guest as an expert in remote working. And she said a couple of things that stuck with me. One was uh, this remote, this remote working is a, is a skill set and the product productivity of remote workers tends to go down before it actually goes up and, and supersedes often their uh, on-premise working. Uh, but, but secondly, the tools matter. So the extent to which people are equipped with the right tools matters in terms of retention and a bunch of other metrics. So what, you, what you're saying that makes complete sense. This investment is, is, is crucial. Here's a tip, and, and I thought this was an amazing thing. My wife's company is, has been virtual, a distributed virtual sales team for a long time. Uh, and one thing that, they, that their CEO did, she came on one of their first virtual calls when they made video mandatory. Uh, and she came in as, as if she'd just rolled out of bed, hair a mess, sweatshirt on, cat in front of her. You know, kind of just imagine that. And she said to her team, if I can do this and look this way, you have no excuses. And one of the things that I would encourage if there are leaders on listening to this or watching this and you're virtual for the first time as a team, take the lead in giving people permission to be imperfect on video. Uh, Give them a tour of the laundry room you're working from uh, because not only is it humanizing, right? It drives connection, but it keeps people from freaking out so much when a cat, when a cat walks across their laptop or when a, a kid walks uh, through to the kitchen to grab something to drink in the middle of their virtual lesson they're doing with their teachers. I mean, that uh, the ability to kind of humanize, that happens with icebreakers and stuff in person, right? That's one of the reasons why we do those kinds of things. Uh, but think about how you humanize your regular work. I think it has a real opportunity to bring teams closer together faster. Right. And that challenges what you said earlier about creating comfort. So I can, I can really understand. People are kind of feeling anxious that what might come into shot at any moment, if they've got that out of their system early on, they're going to they're feel more comfortable. Yeah. Right, right. I, I would even for an organization, I would think about a, a kind of a traveling trophy, as it were, for the... Uh, kind of the, the best of the worst sort of thing and just let people lean into that, have some fun with it, build a ritual around it uh, because there are all these things that aren't in your control. And uh, it's just like at the office, but we don't, we don't think about it in that way uh, because we think we're all in it together physically, but we're all in it together virtually here. Right. Right. 
Okay, so you're now at this interesting juncture, right? Where do you, how do you see the filament business changing then? If you had a crystal ball here, given the experience you're having now, and I guess it's going to play out for, for several months, for, certainly for most Western countries now. You know, we've, um, we've rolled out, we've pivoted very quickly. So we had most of the technology and the tools already. We've reconfigured them in some ways. Uh, and we think we've got a bit of a head start. So we've rolled out this offering called Practically in Person that is designed to give people a filament experience virtually. And what's, what has been kind of speaking of leaning into the opportunity, it all of a sudden allows us to, uh, if the business grows, is to build best-in-class collaborations with people who otherwise aren't here in St. Louis, right? There aren't thousands of amazing facilitators who work the way we work in the Midwest, but they're in London, they're in New York, they're in Chicago, they're in these places where the work is happening. So uh, we're leaning into the virtual meeting, but really trying to build something that feels still vital and connected and collaborative. The last thing we want to do is for our virtual meetings to feel like you could do it yourself because having space, we never run into that. People walk into our space and they're like, oh, we could never do this. This feels great. And so how do we translate that in-person experience around creativity and vitality and engagement online? And we haven't licked it yet completely. We're trying to, we're, well, like as I think about what each of our weeks look like, in the two weeks past and the two weeks ahead, uh, how do we rethink the, the virtual waiting room, right? What does your experience coming into the meeting look like and feel like? How do we pair up small groups together just like they would be here uh, grabbing their coffee before, they, before the meeting starts? How do we give them even, send them if necessary, the toys and the tools, the things that feel different and better. So the in-person prep is going to be crucial. That's where we're leaning into, especially next week, we're building a couple things. Uh, the other way we're pivoting, and this actually is really just an extension of the work we've done, is, as I mentioned earlier, having space allows you to do things at the economics are different than having to rent space and then do things. Uh, so we're trying to lean in with these capabilities within our nonprofit partners here in town uh, and helping them uh, solve mission critical problems. And so we're going to be giving away a lot of these asynchronous mixed of double 90 minute session board retreat strategy sessions for them, uh, which also allows us to get better. That, that's advice I'd give to anyone who's in this world trying to meet is uh, don't just stick with these tools with your coworkers, engage with your church and community groups, engage with your neighbors. Uh, if your parents, I don't know how Richard, how old you are. My parents are in their late seventies, early eighties. And uh, if I can figure out a model that my parents can use, then we've hit that sweet spot on how useful it is for others. So engage with these tools. Uh, and then the last thing, uh, just from a tip standpoint that I'm trying to figure out and leaning into a bit is look at the ways that people outside of business are using these tools to deliver things, often with more significant constraints. Teachers right now are teaching, vir you know, teaching virtually. Uh, you know, in, in, in the medical profession, people are using these virtual care tools in different ways. Look for cues outside of your particular industry or your organization. And think about how those tools might apply uh, in your situation. And then and I, I know I feel like I keep on saying the last thing, but, but one thing that's also sprung to mind is that 
understand what problem you're really trying to solve, right? What are you trying to figure out uh, and does it need a meeting, right? An hour meeting with 10 people is a 10 hour meeting. And if I'm gathering everyone around this circle for them to all report to me because I'm the leader, I'm way better off spending five minutes with each of them because then that 600 minutes goes down to about 120, 110 uh, from a load organizationally. And uh, so maybe even meet less, even though that feels a little bit contrary to my business model. Right. But then I can see how it's entirely consistent with your business model because people need to come out of the meetings with you feeling like it was valuable. And if they feel like they've wasted their time, they're not going to hire you again. So you, you've got to be on the leading edge of when it's right to have a meeting and when it isn't. That, uh, we're hoping to. I know that uh, there's a huge opportunity space here because uh, right now people are in survival mode, uh, literally and figuratively, but certainly from a business standpoint, just trying to figure out where their desk goes so their Wi-Fi reception is best, right? Uh, if you really spend time paying attention to these tools and getting good at them, I think it's going to be a skill set that's going to stick with people for a long period of time. And that two or three week head start you might have even if you begin today uh, will be hard to overcome from your peers. It becomes a competitive advantage that no one has in their LinkedIn profile yet today really good with virtual meetings. Uh, I'm sure we're going to see some uh, social media gurus pivot to Zoom guru at some point very quickly on their on their LinkedIn profile. But all kidding aside, this is something that you can be good at. At least you can be way better than average really fast. Yeah. Great, great message. Yeah. There's uh yes, well of course this is sobering times for many. Um there's a great opportunity here as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Uh, from what looks like a wonderful venue if i'm ever in st louis i i'd uh, love to, to swing by this looks looks great where you're at uh um yeah thank you thank you for the tips thank you for the insight uh, and for people who want to to learn more about what you offer where, where do you, where do you send them so the website is the filament.com t-h-e-f-i-l-a-m-e-n-t.com uh, on twitter i'm matt homan m-a-t-t-h-o-m-a-n-n and uh, all of our filament social posts are at me at filament. So I uh, would hope to see you. And we've got a newsletter that uh, where we're sharing not just the lessons and learned and insights, but the things we're, we're collecting from other folks around ways of working and collaborating both in person and virtually called the Monday morning meeting. You go to our website. We'd love if you'd sign up. Monday morning meeting. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thank you. And uh, yeah, well, uh, maybe worth checking in again at, at the end of all this and see where you've got to with with the virtual side. Yeah, I, I've already got the gray hair, so I, I don't know what the uh, what the signal will be for stress or not. But uh, maybe if I'm a, maybe if I've shortened by the time we get back together, you'll see if the stress is wearing on me. But y you can only do so much. We're in a hard time, and if you're not thinking creatively about how to solve the problems for the customers that might be new to them. Uh, you're going to be, uh, be struggling and, and our fingers are crossed that everyone gets through it. Okay. All right. Thank you, Matt. See you. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.